This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash free books to read other articles. He Shall Have Dominion by Kenneth L. Gentry Jr. Copyright 1992 Published by the Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas Chapter 2 The Purpose of this Treatise Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. 1 Peter 3.15 The writer of Ecclesiastes remarks that, Of making many books there is no end. Ecclesiastes 12.12 Today this seems especially to be the case with eschatological books. As I noted in the preceding chapter, there are those who complain about the fielding of additional material relating to the overcrowded field of eschatology. It is necessary to provide a chapter setting forth the purpose and rationale of the present work. In this book, I intend to accomplish the following goals. First, to furnish helpful information on the eschatological debate. Second, to give careful exposition of the to major eschatological themes in the Bible. Third, to set forth a detailed vindication of that eschatological position generally known as postmillennialism. Finally, to provide a biblical invitation to the reader to adopt the postmillennial eschatology. I have therefore divided this chapter into four sections that encompass these four goals information, exposition, vindication, and exhortation. Information Theological Awareness Christians should be aware of contemporary theology, particularly evangelical formulations. Too, feature, too few Christians today have an adequate grasp of the doctrine of Scripture. This is due to a widespread disinterest in doctrinal preaching and deep reading. John A. Sproul laments, The tragedy today is the apparent disinterest in the preaching of doctrine in the church, caught up in the craze for Christian entertainment and psychology the church is worse off for it. This problem, though intensified in our day, is not new. The growth of ignorance in the church is the logical and, and inevitable result of the false notion that Christianity is a life and not, and not also a doctrine. If Christianity is not a doctrine, then of course teaching is not necessary to Christianity. Regarding the material in Christian bookstores, R.C. Sproul comments that my guess is that in the current Christian bookstore, the simplistic book outweigh the simple books by at least 10 to 1. I've often wondered where Jesus, where Jesus would apply his hastily made whip if he were to visit our culture. My guess is that it would not be the money-changing tables in the temple that would feel his wrath, but the display racks in Christian bookstores. Much of the doctrine evangelical Christians today have picked up has been through inform- informal instruction that is largely inadequate and often downright heretical. The doctrine of eschatology, because of its theological complexity, historical breadth, and practical significance requires intense study and careful reflection. The need of care in this area is evidenced by the proliferation of last-day cults over the last 150 years, such as Seventh-day Adventists, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Jehovah's Witnesses, Herbert W. Armstrong's Worldwide Church of God, the Children of God, the Unification Church, and others. A divine lament in Scripture is quite a propos today. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, Hosea 4.6. Christians are urged 
to be diligent to show themselves approved workmen of God that need not be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 Light is an emphasized metaphor of the Christian faith. Consequently, obscuritanism and ignorance are not virtues for the people of God. We need to get things bright and clear and theologically and ethically. Because of both our sin and our finitude, we cannot know anything exhaustively, though we can know truly what we do know. Consequently, no one knows all there is to know regarding Scripture, so we will always need to study it more in order to gain a better understanding of it. The Scripture teaches that a wise man will hear and will increase learning, Proverbs 1.5, and the better we apprehend and apply Scripture, the closer will be our walk with God. For sanctification comes through the means of the Word of God. Sanctify them through my truth. Thy word is truth. All Christians, therefore, should desire the sincere milk of the Word that they may grow thereby. 1 Peter 2 2. As we grow in the knowledge of the Word of truth, we should strive to reach a level of understanding that would equip us to be competent teachers of the Word. Hebrews 5 12 14. Contra John 3 10. None of us knows it all, thus the study of issues of contemporary concern is always practically beneficial to the Christian, and the labor of diligent and systematic study of scriptural issues is, is essential to the Christian's pleasing God. My concern in this work is with an evangelical audience. Consequently, I will give only occasional and passing reference to the various eschatological formulas by liberal theologians, such as might be discovered in process theology, liberation theology, and the like. This approach does not imply that a study of the errors involved rationalistic eschatology formulas is unneeded. For a full-orbed Christian witness, we should strive to understand and, and be able to respond to those who would subvert doctrine within the church. Nevertheless, due to space limitations, this will not be engaged in the present work. Hasty Postmortems Many evangelical treatments of eschatology obscure the facts of contemporary options, sometimes through ignorance sometimes through overstatement. Whatever the reason, a great disservice is done to the unsuspecting reader who inadvertently adopts and then labors under a delusion. For instance, it is often stated that postmillennialism is dead, supposedly having totally collapsed because of World War I. Although it is true that postmillennialism fell on upon hard times after World War I and II, it is not true that it totally disappeared from the church. Here are several statements from different decades regarding the alleged death of postmillennialism and show that at best such were are misleading overstatements and, at worst, downright erroneous. In 1936, Lewis Sperry Schaefer stated, Postmillennialism is dead. It is dead in the sense that it offers no living voice in its own defense when the millennial question is under discussion. It exists only in the limited literature which it created and with no living voice to defend it. 1948 in 1956, Culbertson and Kenst observed, Devout postmillennialism has virtually disappeared. In 1958, J. Dwight Pentecost wrote that, Postmillennialism is no longer an issue in theology. Postmillennialism finds no defenders or advocates in the present childistic discussions within the theological world. In 1959, Walward suggests that postmillennialism is not a current issue in millenarianism and that, in eschatology, the trend away from postmillennialism becomes almost a rout from the advent of World War II. In 1961, Merrill F. Unger claimed of postmillennialism, 
This theory, largely disapproved by the progress of history, is practically a dead issue. In 1970, Hall Lindsay commented, "There used to be a group called postmillennialists, no self-respecting scholar who looks at the world conditions and the, and the accelerating decline of Christian influence today is a postmillennialist." As late as 1990, John Walward wrote, "Postmillennialism largely died out in the first quarter of the 20th century." World War One dashed the hopes of those who said the world was getting better and Christianity was triumphing. The impression left by such statements is simply untrue. In fact, the statements were incorrect when originally made. Chaffer's 1936 statement demonstrates little awareness of the strong postmillennialism current in Southern Presbyterian circles in the 1920s, leading up to the era of this statement. Important articles on postmillennialism were published after World War One in Union Seminary Review. By Eugene C. Caldwell in 1922, and T. Carey Johnson in 1923, a postmillennial book by Russell Cecil was published in 1923, and sometime after 1921, David S. Clark published a postmillennial commentary on Revelation. J. Gresham Machen, who died in 1937, was a widely known writer who fought valiantly against encroaching liberalism in the church and in society. He also was a postmillennialist. Chaffer was simply in error when he stated that the postmillennialism was dead and had no living voice in this time. J. Dwight Pentecost had even less reason to assert postmillennialism's total demise in 1958. In the 1940s, premillennialist D. H. Cominga and amillennialist Floyd E. Hamilton were contending with postmillennialists. Cominga wrote in 1945 that all three major eschatological views. Are still persisting among Protestants in our country. Floyd E. Hamilton makes clear. O. T. Alice, an important defender of the faith and a writer well known to Pentecost, was defending postmillennialism in 1947 and 1954, just prior to Pentecost's Things to Come. Not long before Pentecost's statements, J. M. Kick, 1948-1954, Alan R. Ford, 1951. Roderick Campbell, 1954, and Lorraine Botner, 1958, made important contributions to the eschatological debate. In 1952, premillennialist George E. Ladd, in a book referenced in Pentecost's Things to Come, admitted that the postmillennial interpretation is not altogether dead. In 1953, there was enough interest in postmillennialism to justify reprinting David Brown's postmillennial work, Christ's Second Coming. Pentecost statements were simply not justified by the evidence. In the case of the statement by the popular prophecy writer Hal Lindsey, there is no excuse for that for the error. In 1989, fellow dispensationalist Thomas Ice admits that the last 20 years has seen an upsurge of postmillennialism. Just two years after Pentecost's work and a decade before Lindsey's, E. F. Cavan wrote, "There are many evangelical believers who hold these postmillennial views." The classic dispensational commentary on Revelation by one of Lindsay's seminary professors, John Walvoord, clearly pointed out in 1966 that Botner's postmillennial work has revived postmillennialism. By Lindsay's time, postmillennialism has be- had begun to make its re- reinvigorated presence strongly felt. John Murray's postmillennial commentary on Romans was published in 1965. Errol Hulse's postmillennial work, The Restoration of Israel, preceded Lindsay bo- Lindsay's book by two years. Butner's book had gone through six printings by the time Lindsay published this statement. 
the Banner of Truth Trust was established in the 1950s and had been republishing many Puritan postmillennial books for more than a decade before Lindsay. It was also republishing postmillennial articles in its popular magazine. And in fact, postmillennial contributions in the Banner of Truth magazine in the year Lindsay published his book, 1970, included articles by Donald McCloyd, Donald Dunkirkley, Ian Murray, Alexander Somerville, S. M. Hughton, and W. Stanford Wright. Also, 1970 witnessed the publication of R.J. Rushdoony's postmillennial book, Thy Kingdom Come, and Peter Toon's Puritans, The Millennium and the Future of Israel. In the next year was published a major postmillennial work that had already begun, had been advertised and promoted in 1970, Ian Murray's The Puritan Hope, Revival, and the Interpretation of Prophecy. To quote Mark Twain, the postmillennial system could well complain the rumors of my death are greatly exaggerated. Dispensationalists have only recently even begun to admit the presence of postmillennialism. The waxing and waning of eschatological systems. Despite the extreme exaggerations of some regarding the demise of postmillennialism, it is true that by the mid-1900s its fortunes had been greatly reduced from its earlier times of near dominance, the 1600s and 1800s. Through most of the 1800s, postmillennialism would be called the commonly received doctrine, as it was in 1859. Historians can state that various postmillennial views were scattered throughout the major denominations, but none of those successfully challenged the hegemony of postmillennialism before the last decades of the century. Such has certainly not been the case in the 1900s. Although any historical analysis of the decline of postmillennialism is complex, there does appear to, to be merit in the view that, in a word, the erosion of postmillennialism was a part of the waning of supernaturalism in the early 1900s. Evangelical postmillennialism held to a high supernaturalism that could shake heaven and earth. With the decline of a widespread commitment to supernaturalism in conjunction with the arising of various radical critical theories, interest in postmillennialism waned. Nevertheless, Postmillennialism since 1965 has experienced a renaissance. As indicated above, there has, become, there has begun to flow an ever-increasing stream of postmillennial literature. In the 1980s, that stream has become a flood. Yet at the same time, and at least partly because of the, renewed, because of the renewal of postmillennial ad- advocacy, there is evidence of a decline in adherence to premillennialism, the dominant evangelical view of the 1900s. Some recent dispensational works have begun mentioning the slipping of the numbers of premillennialists. One dis- dispensational writer writes that today a growing number of Christians are exchanging the hope for the rapture for a new hope. Of dispensational adherence, he laments, the numbers are dwindling. Two other recent dispensational writers comment, In fact, the premillennial position is probably more on the decline at the present time than the other two views. Still, another observes that in the last quarter of the 20th century, a movement has begun to return to the Reformation as a basis of theology, and with it, an abandonment of dispensationalism and premillennialism. Another bemoans that premillennialism, though still entrenched with many local churches, is no longer being taught from the pulpit and is rapidly falling from favor. This, the question is, why? Why now and not a century ago? Has it something to do with too many failed prophecies? As with the decline of postmillennialism, the 
the ascertaining of the exact reasons for premillennialists' decline are certainly numerous and complex. Yet a case can be made that premillennialism, particularly its young offspring, dispensationalism, is being embarrassed to death. The temptation to date-setting is just too ingrained in the premillennial mindset to resist, particularly in the, as the year 2000 approaches. One premillennialist admits the premillennialians' credibility is at a low ebb because they have succumbed to the temptation to exploit every conceivable possible prophetic fulfillment. It is not likely that the situation will change greatly. In the late 1980s, there was an agreement signed by a number of dispensationalists urging against such a lamentable situation, but the addiction continues. Even those dispensationalists less prone to date-setting admit the problem. Leiter comments, Sometimes individuals who embrace a particular view of end-time events embarrass others who hold the same view, and they even put the view in poor light by their radical and extreme viewpoints. I refer particularly to the date setting for Christ's return. He specifically mentions Edgar C. Weissnant's Why the Rapture Could Be in 1988 and Hall Lindsay's 1980s Countdown to the Armageddon. Thomas D. Ice laments, just this week, the week before Christmas, I received in the mail from an anonymous sender a book entitled Blessed Hope, 1996, by someone from the Houston area named Salty Doc. You guessed it, the rapture is slated for 1996. Unfortunately, both advocates and antagonists of dispensationalism are woefully ignorant that the very, bi- that the very biblical assumptions underlying dispensationalism are themselves hostile to the date setting of the rapture. Much harm has been done by the supposed friends, not to mention the critics of dispensationalism by these distortions. For instance, dispensational theologian John F. Walward is dogmatic that the rapture of the church must always be imminent. When he writes, There is no teaching of of any intervening event. The prospect of being taken to heaven at the coming of Christ is not qualified by description of any signs or prequisite events. Yet he cannot resist the excitement generated by the recent Gulf War, the 100-Day War. In a recent interview in USA Today, we read his words. Bible prophecy is being fulfilled every day. Question. So, the prophetic clock is ticking? Answer, yes. In one of his recent books, Walvoord includes a table recording predicted events related to the nations. Among those predicted events, he lists, 1. United Nations organized as the first step towards world government in 1946. Number six, Red China becomes a military power. Eight, the Arab oil embargo in 1973, and other such predicted events. It is likely that a continuing flood of failed expectations will eventually sink premillennial views. It would seem that the current decline, halted only temporarily by the Gulf War, of premillennialism might be attributable to failed expectations. Exposition. I have in mind several major reasons for the publication of the present book. My first desire is to set forth in the contemporary debate a careful and exegetically rigorous foundation for postmillennialism. Care will be taken to treat the major eschatological passages of Scripture in establishing the case for postmillennialism. There are some Christians, including Christian scholars, who seem remarkably unaware of the existence of an exegetical case for postmillennialism. Others doubt that postmillennialism can be demonstrated from the New Testament, although they recognize a certain plausibility based on Old Testament exegesis. The case can be made from the New Testament, but even if it could not, does that mean that we should therefore ignore the Old Testament? Number one. 
complaints against postmillennialism. Two Dutch Reformed pastors complained postmillennialians cannot produce a single passage of scripture in defense of their spiritualizing system. Not one. This is a great difficulty. Dale H. Kuiper lodges at his first complaint against postmillennialism. In the first place, we do not find a careful exegesis of scripture which takes into account the nature of prophecy and vision. We do not find exegesis of passages which would seem to oppose postmillennialism. L. S. Chafer writes off postmillennialism as wholly devoid of biblical foundations. Doubtless, the stress upon Bible study of the present century has served to uncover the unscriptural character of this system. Its advocates have not been able to meet the challenge made to them to produce one scripture which teaches a millennium before the advent of Christ, or that teaches an advent of Christ after the millennium. John Wolford protests in a similar vein. The contenders for postmillennialism never set up their own view in a solid way. After all, the issue is whether postmillennialism is taught in the Bible. Thomas D. Ice complains: After fourteen years of study, it is my belief that there is not one passage anywhere in Scripture that would lead to the postmillennial system. The best postmillennialism can come up with is a position built upon inference. Richard A. Young writes. The primary weakness of postmillennialism is that it lacks exegetical support. After citing an optimistic postmillennial conception of history, amillennialist George Murray complains of the doctrine's absence in the New Testament. One cannot but regret, however, that with the Bible in his hand, the writer did not produce chapter and verse to prove his contention. The obvious reason is that no such plain promise could be quoted from the New Testament. For neither Jesus Christ nor his apostles gave the slightest indication of any real rest for the church until she enters upon the rest prepared for the people of God, on the other side of death. Erickson largely agrees. Perhaps more damaging to postmillennialism is the apparent neglect of scriptural passages that portray scriptural and moral conditions as worsening in the end times. It appears that postmillennialism has based its doctrine on very careful selected scriptural passages. Amillennialist Richard B. Gaffin also doubts the New Testamental validity of postmillennialism when he criticizes postmillennial adv- advocacy. Briefly, the basic issue is this: Is the New Testament to be allowed to interpret the Old as the best, most reliable interpretive tradition in the history of the Church, and certainly the Reformed tradition, has always insisted? Will the vast stretches of Old Testament prophecy, including its recurrent, frequent, multivalent apocalyptic imagery thus be left without effective New Testament control and so become a virtual blank check to be filled out in capital whatever may be its source that is something other than the result of sound exegesis. In addition, some passages of less significance for the establishment of postmillennialism per se are of great interest to the student of biblical prophecy. Some of these are familiar passages that are being abused today by seeking, the, by seeking to apply them without biblical warrant to contemporary fulfillments. Many of these intriguing passages will be covered as well. Two, an apologetic for postmillennialism. As my second goal, I hope to provide a book that is worthy, that is a worthy apologetic of postmillennialism through a careful, systematic, theological, and historical development of the postmillennial system. There are many contemporary systematic eschatological works in the various non-postmillennial systems. Unfortunately, systematic formulas of postmillennialism tend to be either somewhat dated, or if contemporary, more introductory than thorough. Thomas Finger is not too far wrong when he comments: 
Postmillennialism has not been expounded in, a, in as minute detail as has dispensationalism. I hope that this work will serve as a foundational text for postmillennialism in the contemporary debate. 3. Interaction with Rival Views Third, a major design of the present work is to provide a comparison and interaction with the other major evangelical millennial views. It is too often the situation today in popular millennial literature that many make unwarranted assumptions implying the universal recognition of a particular view without informing the reader of competing systems. This is particularly true in dispensational circles, especially among the popular proponents, more so than among the theologians. Thus, I will interact with the non-postmillennial systems, attempting to summarize their, sal- their salient features and expose their flaws as understood from a biblically-based postmillennial viewpoint. Interestingly, or perhaps tragically, the resurgence of postmillennialism has been rather harshly attacked recently by some dispensationalist writers. The underlying assumption in these works is always dispensationalism's implicit, monopolistic claim to orthodoxy. There is a distressing ignorance in too many Christians today regarding the existence of non-premillennial eschatologies among Bible-believing evangelical Christians. A kind of blackout exists within dispensational circles. Hunt, with historical naivete, castigates the resurgent postmillennialism of the 1980s. When confronted with an alleged key doctrine that men and women of God have failed to uncover from Scripture in the 1900 years of church history, we have good reason to be more than a little cautious. After all, this is the stuff of which cults are made. It takes a certain, certain arrogance to claim to have discovered a vital teaching that the entire church has overlooked for 1900 years. This, you understand, comes from a man who defends an eschatological position pre-tribulational dispensationalism whose origin which cannot be traced back no earlier than 19, 1820 and probably no earlier than 1830. Vindication one of the frustrating barriers that postmillennialists face in the modern debate is a tendency by some to distort postmillennialism. Many of the average Christians in the pew have such a flawed view of postmillennialism that, in, that it is sometimes difficult to gain a hearing with them. Postmillennialism is deemed to be utterly thisworldly in an unbiblical sense. It is often considered to be an aspect of the social gospel of liberalism or it is thought to throw out valid hermeneutical procedures to its bend and twist of scripture into a liberal system. Still others wrongly assume postmillennialism involves our union with, of church and state. Again, popularizers of other viewpoints are generally the source of the problem. Even worse, there are some fundamental misunderstandings of postmillennialism, even by noteworthy theologians, and some of these published errors have been in print for decades without any attempt at correction. This deserves exposure because it is the tendency of many, of many simply to pick up on confident statements found in published works and promote them as truth. Such errors will be dealt with in detail in later chapters. Exhortation Finally, a strong concern in producing this work is to issue a challenging exhortation to evangelical Christians to adopt the Christ-promoting, optimistic, culture-transforming postmillennial eschatology. I do not desire merely to produce an academic work which merely presents the case for postmillennialism, but one that will in fact promote its adoption. If there is a strong biblical case for postmillennialism, and I believe there is, and if that case can be convincingly presented, which I pray I will do, 
then the Christian reader must let the biblical case have its ultimate influence in his thinking. He must allow this. He must not merely maintain his form, former position because of ecclesiastical, social, or familial pressures. It is difficult to cast off one's eschatology in order to adopt a new one. I know I have done it. It is difficult intellectually as well as, as ecclesiastically and socially. Intellectually, an eschatological system affects every realm of one's theological understanding and philosophical worldview. A correction in eschatology necessarily produces far-reaching effects throughout one's system of thought and conduct. Ecclesiastically, a, system, a systematic correction in one's eschatological position can have a disruptive effect in some church circles, particularly those requiring dispensational adherence among its officers. Socially, such a change can cost one his fellowship with some Christians. Again, this is particularly true among dispensationalists who convert from the system. Yet the scripture urges, Let God be true, but every man a liar. Romans 3, 4 If the case for postmillennialism can be effectively presented, the challenge is issued. Practically, with the presentation of the postmillennial system, there is set forth a challenge to Christian social activism. With the adoption of a full-orbed biblical worldview based on postmillennialism, the church, the Christian, is urged to confront secular society with the radical claims of Christ by means of personal evangelism, church revitalization, and cultural transformation. Some critics of Reconstructionist postmillennialism recognize the strongly practical elements in postmillennialism. Postmillennialist Ian Murray writes: "In the light of history, we can hardly say that that matters prophetic." are too secondary to warrant our attention. The fact is that we believe or do not believe upon the subject will have great continual influence upon the way we which, in which we live. The greatest spiritual endeavors and achievements in the past have been done those energized by faith and hope. R.J. Rushduni has provided an excellent brief study of the Im- impact of a positive, optimistic eschatology on Christian endeavor. In that study, he notes... A study of hospital patients in relationship to their life expectancy reportedly came to the conclusion that there was a strong correlation between life expectancy and future-oriented thinking. A man whose mind looked ahead to activities a year hence was more likely to live than one whose thinking was only in terms of his daily hospital routine. Those without a future in mind had no future as a rule. His historical analysis following this statement demonstrates the same truth on the cultural level regarding society's future orientation. For such a reason, Milne has admitted, there is one aspect of postmillennialism, however, which is worth retaining, that is, optimism concerning the work of the gospel. His problem is the problem of all millennialists and all premillennialists, how to retain this optimism, which is contrary to the implications of their eschatological systems. Conclusion Christianity and only Christianity is the world's legitimate hope. Postmillennialism sets forth a vibrant, biblically-based, life-changing, culture-transforming Christianity. My concern with the advancement of postmillennial eschatology is not merely academic, it is intensely practical. When there is ignorance and confusion regarding the optimistic hope of Scripture, there is a consequent ebbing of the power and vitality from the Christian faith itself. I am convinced that there is a relationship between the rise and acceptance of dispensationalism in the 19th century and the decline of Christian influence in American society in the 20th. It is my heartfelt desire to encourage the adoption of the biblical eschatology post-millennialism.